0: Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. In 1819, Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi people signed a treaty with the United States near present-day Chicago. It is known as the Treaty of Saginaw because that is where it was signed. It is also known as the Treaty with the Chippewa. According to Wikipedia, the treaty saw Indigenous people seeding more than 6 million acres in the lower peninsula of what is now Michigan. Quote, The southern boundary of the tract extended from a few miles northeast of Jackson West to just northeast of Kalamazoo. The line then ran directly to the head of the Thunder Bay River in south-central Montmorency County and then along the river to the mouth in Thunder Bay near Alpena. From there it extended northeast to the international boundary line between the United States and the British province of Upper Canada, and then along the boundary south to the boundary line established by the Treaty of Detroit in 1807, which ran from the shore of Lake Huron in the northeast Sanilac County southwest to a point several miles northeast of Lansing and then due south to the point of origin. The treaty reserved several smaller tracts of land for Indian use within the ceded territory. Quote. This wasn't the first or the last treaty signed between the Anishinaabe and American or European nations. For instance, this Saginaw Chippewa Treaty was signed nearly 60 years after the King of England's Royal Proclamation of 1763 had ensured the rights of indigenous peoples. The Saginaw-Chippewa Treaty was signed more than 50 years after Pontiac's Rebellion and 45 years after the Quebec Act of 1774. The Saginaw-Chippewa Treaty was signed about 40 years after the American War for Independence. The Louisiana Purchase had occurred 16 years prior to the Saginaw-Chippewa Treaty in 1803. The War of 1812 was still a recent memory and leaders such as Tecumseh were now dead. Furthermore, the Treaty of Ghent, a peace treaty between the United States and Britain, had been signed five years earlier in 1814. A lot of treaties were signed in this time period on both sides of the medicine line between First Nations and the United States and British governments. At the same time, American infrastructure was increasing in the East. Quote, from Fort Chiswell on the Holston River, a single wagon road led to the Cumberland Gap, where travelers picked up the Wilderness Road, cut by Daniel Boone before the Revolutionary War, north to the Kentucky Basin. A branch trace west from the Wilderness Road led to Knoxville. An extension was cut to Nashville on the Cumberland River, and following the War of 1812, one fork was extended to Memphis another southwest to Huntsville in the Tennessee Valley of northern Alabama. Emigrants from New England by the 1790s could cross New York by the Mohawk and Catskill Turnpikes to Lake Erie, where boats were available for passage to northern Ohio and later to northern Indiana and Michigan. By the turn of the century, settlers could follow Zane's trace from wheeling on the Ohio West and then south in an arc through Zanesville and Chillicothe to Marysville, Kentucky. By 1818, a road from Cumberland, Maryland, across the mountains, had reached Wheeling, and by 1833, it had been extended to Columbus. What else was happening around the Great Lakes and in Anishinaabe territory around that time? Steamboats were the latest in motive power. Canals were being built to aid the movement of boats, people, and goods. Quote, the first steamboat built at Pittsburgh, the New Orleans, was sent downstream in 1811. Four years later, the enterprise ascended the Mississippi and the Ohio as far as the falls at Louisville. By 1819, there were 31 steamboats in operation, and by 1825, 75 had joined the hundreds of rafts, flatboats, and keelboats hauling people, goods, and produce on western waters. End quote. All these people needed places to live and food to eat. They needed resources. The so called problem, of course, was that there were already people living upon the land prejudicially labeled as wilderness. The quote, unquote, Indian problem is that we exist. Each treaty was built upon earlier treaties. A lot of American territories were created in the early eighteen hundreds. Quote The area of the initial Northwest Territory later included Indiana Territory, eighteen hundred, Michigan Territory, 1805, and Illinois Territory, 1809. The regions south of Kentucky included Southwest Territory, 1790, Mississippi Territory, 1798, and Alabama Territory, 1817. Following the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, Congress created Orleans Territory, 1804, Louisiana Territory, 1805, Missouri Territory, 1812, and Arkansas Territory, 1819. Territories were created or renamed as portions of existing territories were advanced to a higher governmental stage or admitted into the Union as states. Indeed, so heavy was the flow of people west that by 1821, nine new states west of the Appalachian Mountains had been added, seven east and two west of the Mississippi River. Kentucky, 1792, Tennessee, 1796, Ohio, 1803, Louisiana, 1812, Indiana, 1816, Mississippi, 1817, Illinois, 1818, Alabama, 1819, and Missouri, 1821. Five of the nine were added in the years following the War of 1812. The power of the Indians had been broken and prices for agricultural produce had boomed. Quote. Who were the people and what were the terms and context involved in the signing of the Saginaw-Chippewa Treaty of 1819? Louis Cass, Territorial Governor of Michigan, called a meeting at a newly constructed council house. At first, the native people were unwilling to give up their land due to the effects of the Treaty of Greenville signed back in 1795 but Governor Cass was insistent. At their first meeting, the governor made statements regarding the necessity of agriculture as civilization encroached and game became scarce. He concluded by stating that they would be better off confining themselves to reservations and ceding the territory to the American government. The Anishinaabek responded with shock and anger. Ogoma Kekito a representative of the Anishinaabek, delivered a rousing rebuttal, decrying the Americans for being greedy and invasive compared to the British. Your young men have invited us to come and light the council fire. We are here to smoke the pipe of peace, but not to sell our lands. Our American father wants them. Our English father treats us better. He has never asked for them. Your people trespass upon our hunting grounds. You flock to our shores. Our waters grow warm. Our land melts like a cake of ice. Our possessions grow smaller and smaller. The warm wave of the white man rolls in upon us and melts us away. Our women reproach us. Our children want homes. Shall we sell from under them the spot where they spread their blankets? We have not called you here. We smoke with you the pipe of peace. This angered Cass, who informed the council that the United States had reigned victorious in the War of 1812 and thus could easily take over Saginaw without payment. The meeting concluded with a general sense of disappointment and anxiety. End quote. In the days after the meeting, the Americans started handing out alcohol. Then, one by one, the Anishinaabe people began giving up territory for reservations and land grants. Quote, the signing of the treaty caused the influence of the Native nations in the Old Northwest to substantially weaken as the fur trade collapsed. Their historic lands were settled, and they became forcibly dependent on annuity payments from the United States. End quote. What was happening to Anishinaabe people far north of the Medicine Line before 1820? To think of the rest of the continent, such as the Hudson Bay watershed, as empty or devoid of economics would be incorrect. That's because at this time the fur trade was still going strong. The Hudson's Bay Company, a British endeavor, had its beginnings in 1670. About a hundred years later, in 1779, the Northwest Company was founded in Montreal and competed with their British counterparts. By 1820, the Cree and Ojibwe people of the Hudson Bay and James Bay regions had already been dealing with the British or the French in some capacity for a century and a half. Indeed, the Ojibwe and Cree cultures have been communicating with French and English so much that we Ojikree people often say hello. In an indigenized form of the French bonjour and English what cheer. We will say "boujou" or "wajie" to greet people. In our language we might say something like aninesiaen which is like saying what are you doing. But our way is to accept and include the languages of other people. But I digress. In the early 1800s, in what is now northern Manitoba and Ontario, Ojibwe and Cree people were by now in the height of the fur trade and had been accustomed to that socioeconomic lifestyle for at least a couple of generations. For example, along the Barrens River in Manitoba, an ethnographical account states the following, Quote, It is possible that the earliest local contacts of the Barrens River Ojibwe with white traders date from the close of the 18th century, since there is oral tradition to this effect. It is said that these earliest traders represented the Northwest Company, with whom the lineages inland may well have been in contact in the Lake Superior area before moving north. It is traditional among the Indians that the Northwest Company traders not only had a post at the river mouth, but also at what is now called Old Fort Rapids, a distance of 40 miles up the river. Jim MacDonald, a man almost 90 years of age in 1934, remembered hearing his great-grandmother, the wife of Yellowlegs, tell about an occurrence one winter when the Northwest Company men at the former post were at the point of starving. The men came over to where she and her husband were camped. One of them said, You look fat, and felt her arm. They gave yellow legs rum and some ammunition to kill a moose for them. After her husband killed the moose, she said, They moved their camp. They were frightened by the way these white men had acted. Quote. To me it sounds like these company men from the post were turning into windigos, which are humans who have become cannibals. Luckily yellow legs saved those company men from turning into complete windigos by feeding them moose meat. The ethnographical account continues. Quote, "It is a matter of record that the Hudson's Bay Company built a post at the mouth of the river in 1814. The post was named for Joseph Barrons, deputy governor of the company from 1807 to 1812, and governor from 1812 to 1822 this was in the time of william barron's grandfather bear who was the first to adopt barons as a surname this post has remained the focal trading establishment on the eastern side of lake winnipeg between fort alexander and norway house in the early days of the fur trade it was a common practice for the master of a local post to make one or more of the best hunters a sort of unofficial agent. The man chosen was held more or less responsible for seeing to it that the other Indians brought in all their fur to the post. A similar custom was followed on the Barrens River during most of the 19th century. The trading chief usually received a new suit of clothes every year, rum, tobacco, and a large red feather which he wore on his hat. End quote. In modern terms, the good hunters basically became assistant managers of a fur trade franchise. Over many years, some of these fur trade posts and indigenous villages became the cities of modern North America, although the indigenous inhabitants were, over time, forced onto Indian reservations or into extinction. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.